Philippians 3, and we'll start with verse 12. Uh, we'll work our way down to 21. Um, here's what we've seen so far with Paul. Paul plants this church, and he loves this church. He consistently talks about how he yearns to be with these people that he's planted and really left, and he's gone and planted other churches, and he's actually in prison when he writes this. Paul's desire is to be with these people, but one of the things that he wants them to be is to be captivated by the gospel. But what he talks about in in this chapter, to me, has stuck out the most out of this entire book. What you see in in the latter verses, he uses this language that just, it is profound. He says in verse 7, but whatever I I had gained, I counted for the sake of Christ. And then he he goes on, even in verse 9, he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ. So you have this guy, even in verse 8, he says, he counts everything that he's done well as rubbish, as dung, as the S word, right? He goes on further and he says that I might gain Christ. So everything good that this guy has done, and he's done a lot of really good things. Even though he was a persecutor of the church, he obeyed the law, um, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was uh, circumcised on the eighth day, and he was kind of this ultimate poster child for a religious person, but he says, I count that as all rubbish so that I might gain Christ. And you say, well, what does that mean, gain Christ? Of course he had Christ. He was a believer. So what is he saying, that I might know him, that I might gain Christ? It means that his pursuit of Christ is so much of such a way where he's not content with the state in which he is in right, currently as he's writing this. That he wants more and more of Christ. He wants to know Christ more profound and more deeply so that he can love people more, so that he can love this church more. And that's his main prerogative in life is he wants more of Christ. And, And so you begin to ask, what on earth does that look like? I mean, what does that really look like when we pursue Christ with all that we are, with everything that we are, and and, and, in such a profound way that we want more of him consistently, that we're not even content, and a godly godly discontentment, I think, is key here, that we're not content with the state in which we are. We consistently want to push forward and know him more. What does that look like? Well, I think Paul, in, in chapter uh, 3, 12 through 21, he gives us a portrait of a man in pursuit of Christ. So this is what we're going to look at in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Verse 12, it says this, not that I have already obtained this, this is pursuit of Christ, not that I've already pertained this, or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Notice what he says here. Not that I am perfect. Paul consistently points out his humble state. If you even notice, and we'll look at 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this. This is a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So Paul wrote this letter to close to the end of his life. So I'm guessing that for us to pursue Christ, what we're in pursuit is something that we will never obtain while we're here on earth. 
I mean, if Paul is saying here at the end of his life, not that I am perfect, not that I've even obtained this, if that's Paul, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that what we are pursuing, that we will never obtain it on earth. So we're after something that will consistently make us more and more discontent in a godly way, in godly discontentment, more and more as until we seek him and find him in heaven. So we're after that, and that is what we have. So there's a couple of things that we need to know up front. One is that we are, we are not perfect, nor will we ever be perfect. All right? I know this is a crazy thought for many people. It's, it, it's interesting to me that there are people that I have run into that think that they are perfect. I, I remember in, in college, I, I, would do a, I did a Bible study with a bunch of guys. And all of these guys were, were falling in love with this horrific teacher. I'll just be honest. And they would, they would say, we were talking and we were open after the prayer time. And we do it, the, you know, the accountability thing where you begin to share awkward things that are going on in your life, right? So, you know, what are you, what are you struggling with, bro? You know, which is really, what can I talk about later when we leave? Uh, but, so we're real open. I'm just like, well, man, I, I struggle with this. I struggle with this issue in my life, and this is a sin issue. And I was really just open about it. And then they did that really weird Christian sound that's when they're concerned, mmm, Right? Like, Christians are really good at that sound. Mm, like, well, you don't know what that means yet, but it, something's coming, right? Something's coming. And he goes, I just think you're putting the Holy Spirit in a box. You struggle with this sin. You should have victory over this sin. I'm like, well, i just trying to be honest, man. You know, is this accountability or what, you know? And then he would say, well, we're reading this book about this guy who'd become perfect, and he actually has gone without sin. And I was like, wait a minute, let me get this straight. There's a guy that's so humble that he wrote a book about it to tell people how humble he is. Like, I don't get it. He's like, no, 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 he's, he's without sin. He's, he's gone and he does not, he's not sinning like 10 years. And they're like, man, my brother's trying what he said. He's gone a week without sinning. I'm like, really? He's gone a week without... There's never been a selfish thought. There's never been a I love... Christ, that I love myself more than this. There's never been any of that. There's never been, I will overindulge in this food or this drink or this thought. I wouldn't, there's never been any of that. No, he's not sinned. Like, wow, it's amazing. Well, it's very interesting, though, because 1 John, 8, uh, 1 John 1, 8 through 10, it says this. If we say that we have no sin, what does it say? We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... So we have sin. If we confess our sins, it's, it's a given. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, there it is again. He repeats the same idea. We make who a liar? Him a liar. And his word is not in us. So if we, if we say we've not sinned, we're, we're heretics, right? If we can say that we have no sin in our hearts, we're heretics. That's what he's saying here. So... Paul is saying right out of the gate, I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm not that I'm going to attain this or I'm perfect. But he continues to press on. Next thing I want to just point out is that you are not on a scale. And here's why this is so important. Because some view Christianity as if you are on a scale by which, you know, at zero you became a believer and Christ is on this infinite line and you're consistently trying to work your way down this line to get more and more like Christ. 
And I think some of us, maybe you on your scale, you put maybe a few steps ahead of you, like your life group leader, your small group leader, your Bible study leader. You put that person a little bit further ahead. And then maybe the person that led you to Christ is like a, a couple of notches up. And then what you do is you say, well, I, I think about pastors. Maybe you've put me on that scale. I hope not. Um, but maybe you put me on that scale or other pastors that you know on that scale. And then you put further down the scale of godliness and Christ-likeness. You put it further down and you say, well, well I'm going to put famous pastors down. Like, like John Piper or Billy Graham. He's got to be way down this list. And then what you do is then you say, well, what about dead famous people? Like, I don't know about you, but it seems like when people die, they become more famous. Like, all of a sudden, like, there's Johnny Cash fans everywhere, right? Like, last year when Michael Jackson died, all you saw was frat boys singing, Heal the world, make it a better... Like, you would not have sang that if he was still alive. But now that he's dead, you want to sing it, right? There's something about that. We make automatically add deity to someone when they die. I don't understand that. But what we do, we even do that with dead Godly people, like, oh, C.S. Lewis, he's got to be further down. Charles Spurgeon has got to be further down. And then you put, like, maybe Paul or John or Peter in Scripture. You'd put them, like, right there, right before Christ. And if we view Christianity that way, it is not that way. Here's the thing. All of us, every single one of us, you, me, John Piper, um, uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon... Dead people, alive people, the Apostle Paul, John, Peter, we are all at zero. The ground is equal at the cross, all right? It's very important for you to know that. All of us, we're all obtaining something that we would never get until we meet him, but we are just pursuing it, just hoping for more and more of Christ, just seeing him more and knowing him more. But it's not a scale. It's not a scale, all right? So none of us are perfect, and we are not on some crazy scale. But notice what he says even more. He, he realizes this truth, but he goes further. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing that I do is forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, notice the language, to what lies ahead. I've always wondered what this passage really meant. And I mean, kind of the way I understood it was, you just forget the past. Like, don't worry about the past anymore. And that, some of that's true. But I always wonder because it seemed like, like we get some kind of holy amnesia. Like, overnight when we get this, okay, now I've just kind of forgot the past. It's gone. Like, God just wiped it away from my memory. I don't think it, it can't be that because throughout Scripture, what you have consistently is God telling his people to remember. I mean, you have even in the Old Testament, he's like, remember me. Remember what I've done. Remember, remember how I've rescued you. Remember how I've brought you out of the promised land. He's consistently doing this. With he would even have um, his people build altars of remembrance so that their kids would see this altar and say, I want your kids to see this altar so they can remember what I've done. So it can't be just this blanket, I've forgotten everything in my past. It can't be that. 
Because there, there's got to be points in which we remember what Christ has done and what he's rescued from, and even our sin that he's rescued from and brought us out of so that we can remember that he's good. I mean, if you look at even Psalm 77, he says, I will remember the works of the Lord. I will remember your deeds. If you look at Hebrews 11, the, the hall of faith, you have I remember, I remember, I remember because of faith, because of faith. And it's a consistent testimony of what Christ has done. So it's not this holy amnesia that we have and forgetting what's left behind, forgetting what's behind. But here's what, I, here's what I think he's saying here. He's saying don't live off victories of yesterday. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been around someone that lives off victories of yesterday... They can be very lazy in what they do today and what they'll do tomorrow. I mean, perfect example of that is like NC State fans, right? <laughs> they live off the victories of yesterday, right? If you talk to an NC State fan, they're like, well, Sidney Lowe and blah, blah, blah. I mean, like, yeah, you know? Dave Thompson, you have no idea, right? Well, that was like 20 years ago. It was 30 years ago. I mean, come on, you know? I remember I had a, a, a deacon in, in one of the churches that I served in. And I remember going to his house. And he had a shrine in a corner of his house that was dedicated to all of his accomplishments years and years and years ago. Like when he was like 20 years old. And he's like, man, this is Ben. This is when I, um, I got a certificate for learning how to share the gospel. And now I can share the gospel with anybody. And, like, and it was like all of these plaques up on the wall. It, was, it had his name engraved. And, he's, and all he's doing is living in former victories. But I look at now, and he doesn't do anything. He's not training godly men. He's not showing young men how to be married and how to love their wife like Christ of the church, how to handle their money, how to, how to know sound doctrine and know truth and fight sin. He's not showing any of that. He's living off former victories. And what his cause is him to be absolutely lazy. So I think Paul's saying, hey, hey, forgetting what's behind, listen, it's okay to remember what Christ has done for you, but just don't live Back there, we live for what he's going to continue to do with us as we continue to fight sin, as we can continue to pursue him. I mean, if anything, I, it echoes what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 12 through 13. Here's the great temptation passage. Everybody kind of knows it as that. But look at this, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands, what does he say? Take heed, lest he fall. And then he goes into temptation. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So who, God is faithful. He will, he will get you through it. But what does he say? Take a stand. Take heed. Don't think that because you've gotten through big victories in your life that you're going to get through them tomorrow. Don't live in former victories. Then he also talks about, um, I, I would even argue that this passage would also mean guilt. Don't live in former guilt. The, the things that you did 10 years ago, 5 years ago, a year ago, you can't live in that guilt and saying this is who I am. All of you should be, as you pursue Christ, you're going to pursue what Christ wants you to be and how he continues to change you and mold you. And so, yeah, don't live off former victories, but also don't live off guilt. Absolutely.
So we get further, and he, he's really talking about and setting us up for what a mature believer looks like. So a mature believer doesn't live off former victories. A mature believer doesn't live in guilt. What does a mature believer look like? Look at verse 14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Then he goes on further. Verse 15, it says, Let those of us who are mature think of it this way. And if anything uh, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. So what he's saying here is this. A mature believer looks like this. He's one who pursues Christ at all cost. He's one who's being like Jesus is his ultimate prize. That's what a mature believer looks like. And, and even if they don't realize that at some point, at some point, if they are a true believer, God is going to reveal it to him. He's not saying, hey, there's going to be a magical revelation of there's going to be a message in the sky and we're going to just be walking and all of a sudden, uh, you know, walking on the beach and a, a message in the bottle comes up and that's how he reveals it. He's saying, really, if you are walking in disobedience where you're not pursuing Christ, eventually God is going to convict your heart and you will see it. That is what a mature believer looks like. He, he goes on, even in um, like 1 Timothy, I think this is a really good passage to kind of show you, kind of Paul's intention. Look at 1 Timothy 4, 7-11. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. What does that mean? It means stop playing games. Stop playing games. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while the body, bodily training is of some value, godliness of, of, is of value in every way that it holds promise to present life and also for the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying deserving a full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have set our hope, which is mean you want your current condition to change, to set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command and teach these things. What's Paul saying here? He's like, train yourself in godliness. Train yourself in godliness. He's saying... Stop playing games. If a believer, if a, if a true mature believer consistently wants to grow and stop playing games. That is the motivation of a true believer. And, this, and he talks about it in such a way that it's discipline. He talks about like working out, right? So this is hard work. This, this is challenging at times. This is frustrating at times, but that is okay. But he's saying consistently train yourself in godliness. But notice what he says even at the end of verse 16. He, he kind of gives us a time out here. He says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. It's so interesting to me, and this is what I've noticed living in a, in a, in a young town and in a college town. Everyone wants new revelation. Everyone wants, teach me something new. I've seen it everywhere. But here's the problem. Everyone wants new revelation. However, we don't want to be obedient to what we already know. Isn't that interesting? Teach me something new, but I'm not going to be obedient to what I already know. And what does Paul do? 
He comes on the scene. He's like, wait a minute. Before we go any further in even talking about us maturing and growing in Christ and not playing games, why don't we just think about this? Obtain what we already know. Begin to become obedient to what we already know. And here's the thing. If you are not being obedient to what you already know, the new things that you learn become more and more of a lie. I mean, if if you're just going in this, you're, you're just walking in this sort of, I know this, but I'm not going to practice this or live it out. And then the more and more stuff that you gain, the more and more truth that you learn, if you've not learned to practice what you've learned here, everything else will be a lie. That this is what you have left so he's saying, hey, before we can even, so, so it can't be about just our knowledge of Scripture that, that makes us a mature believer. Because he's like, okay, listen, if you, if you want to learn something, you've got to begin to practice it. And, and even the stuff that you learn at a young age and as a young believer, you begin to practice it and live it out. So that when you learn new truth, you already have the discipline of practicing it. That is what a mature believer looks like. And then he goes even further and he begins to give you an idea of of how you can't do this by yourself. He says, brothers, verse 17, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, he's a great theologian. He points out the very fact that this is why the preaching of the gospel can never be isolated from the life of the church. I, I love that quote because here's, here's what he's saying. Yeah, you can hear the gospel and learn it and know it and you can do podcasts and you can watch videos online of preachers, but it's not going to cut it unless you are in the life of the church and you're imitating other believers who follow him and pursue him in that way. Not on a scale, but just looking at people and saying, listen, that guy pursues Christ with all of his life. That lady loves her family, loves her kids. That guy leads his wife, leads his children. He knows his Bible. He knows the word. And he's living it out. And he's saying, listen, we need the church to help us walk in that. So the gospel is not just preaching. It's actually living it out on a daily basis. This is why we have life groups throughout the week and integrity. Uh, This is why we encourage people throughout the week to meet and hang out and hold each other accountable and walk through the gospel with each other because we we know that it's not just the preaching. It's it's discipleship. It's it's life on life understanding the gospel in this way. So if if we really want to grow and mature and really pursue Christ, we got to have that. Like, it is in, it's not separate from just hearing the gospel message or hearing the word of God on a weekly basis. It's life-on-life life discipleship. For me, personally, I have guys in my life that I pull from in different ways. And here's, here's what I mean by that. I have a mentor that I've had since I was in my young 20s. For, so almost 10, yeah, about 10 years. Um, his name is Mike Kwiatkowski. He is a great pastor in Florida. We differ on probably a lot of issues, but one of the things I noticed about Mike is he is a very disciplined guy. I mean, he ran a marathon, right? And he's like really crazy with his budget and his study time is very valuable. His time management is impeccable. He loves Jesus. He loves his wife. He loves his kids. He's always thinking about how to better provide for them and how to love his church and really pastor his church well. 
So I'm, I'm compelled by that because some of that's not my strength. And so I'm always having him in my life to pull from that. I've got a guy um, here in this city. I've got a Pastor Mike Mishaw. He's a pastor at Grace Church. He's an older and wiser pastor. I mean, I, if I hang out with young, arrogant church planners that are in their late 20s, I'm just going to be a jerk, right? So I have a guy who's, who's almost, he's old enough to be my dad, right? In my life, because he can give me wisdom and, and show me more of the cross. And we disagree. I mean, he's a King James only guy, right? He's got like red letter stuff in his Bible. And like, he's always like, he sent me a text. Like, praying for you today, brother. Jesus is Lord. And I'm like, I would never say that. Right? I would never say that. And he, he goes into Dunkin' Donuts and he shares the gospel with people that he's, you know, buying donuts from. It's, it's amazing. And I, I, I don't do that. I don't have like one-liners that I could, you know, like, could, you know, do you think this donut could feed 5,000 people? Like, I, I would never do that, right? I would never <laughs> do that. But one of the things I've learned from him is that, man, he's bold with his faith. Um, he's bold with his church. He loves his wife. He loves his kids. He, he has an airplane in his pocket, that he pulls out to remind himself to pray for his grandson because that was his grandson's airplane. I can just say, I can learn from that. I can grow. So there's some things that we don't agree on, but I can learn and I can grow from this guy. I've got, uh, you know, the guy who came a couple weeks ago, Will Plitt. He's a great friend of mine. He's a bold man of the gospel. And I, I just love his boldness for Christ. I've got a guy um, in the Outer Banks, um, Pastor Winfield Bevins of the Church of the Outer Banks. He, he's a guy who's just, he's, he's all about prayer and vision. He's a little bit charismatic, right? It kind of weird, weirds me out sometimes. But I can learn from him. I can grow from him. And not, not in a theological way so much. Some of these guys, others I can but I'll pull from, hey, that guy does that really well. I'm going to follow that. I'm, and I think for, for many of you, you need to put yourself around people that will kind of embarrass you a little bit. And not in like a jerky way, but like honestly, like a way that kind of embarrasses you. You say, I would never say that, but I like that this person is bold in Christ. I would never do that, but I like that this person does and it challenges you, and it puts you out of your comfort zone. I think it's okay for you to do that. I think, I think you know, if you want to know theology and doctrine, put yourself around somebody that would embarrass you in theology and doctrine. I think some of you, honestly, can put yourself around people that you are like a spiritual Goliath around. And you're okay with that because you're the rock star. But what, what Paul wants is, hey, look at people who have pursued him in a profound way that challenges you and pushes you out of your comfort zone. So what's next? Look in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. What, what Paul's talking about here is just the opposite of what he described in verses 12 through 17. He, he just nails these guys in, in 18 through 19 and just explains, hey, yeah, there's people that you do follow, that do pursue, that do fight, that do fight sin, that do pursue Christ, but there's also these other guys who are self-righteous idolaters. And all they want to do is get fat 
on what this world has to offer, and they're, they're not pursuing the things of Christ. And he even says they're enemies of the cross. So he's like, don't waste your time with people that are wasting their time. I mean, don't, don't do that. So don't follow people who play games. And, and for those of you who like to feel like you're a spiritual giant, and all you do is hang out with people that do not pursue Christ, and you do that for the sake of being the spiritual giant, all he's saying is you're wasting your time. There's got to be a balance that you are making disciples with people that are, that are not pursuing Christ in a, in a, in a, in a profound way, and it, that you're, you're putting yourself around people that are. There's got to be this balance here. Because you're just wasting your time with people that aren't. You're not going to pursue Christ. You're just going to learn bad habits from them. So he's saying, hey, balance this out. Have this balance. Their eyes are on earthly things. He goes on further in 20 through 21. He says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I mean, he, he even says some of the most profound things about Christ in chapter 2. When he talks about all, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Remember that? Like one of the great passages about how Christ is going to win. And this is what he's going to do. So I always wonder what heaven is like. I mean, it just cannot be where Morgan Freeman is God and... <laughs> You know, we're on white clouds, and, you know, that's what's happening. We just get up there, and it looks like Florida. Like, there's just old people everywhere, and there's, there's nothing to do. It just can't be that. But if you look in, like, let's just look at Revelation 15.3. It says this, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of, of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. I always wonder what that means. Like, what does that mean to sing the song of Moses? What does that mean? Because I'm pretty sure, like, in big boy church, we don't sing songs about Old Testament people. I mean, you know, unless it was like Father Abraham, many sons, right? Many sons have fathers. If you don't know that, you're not missing anything. But um, it's a song that little kids sing and in church. But we don't do that unless like you're charismatic. Charismatics like they love to like bring in like an Old Testament prophet in the song. It's funny. But Baptist folks like you know other folks normally don't put an Old Testament prophet in a song. So what does this mean to sing this song? Of Moses. Because if that's what heaven is going to be like, it's going to be very, very strange unless we understand this rightly. Here's what I I believe that he's talking about here. Could it be that when we're all standing at the banqueting table of the Lamb with the new wine, even the Baptist folks, the new wine in our hands, raising our glasses and saying, Christ did this. This is what Jesus did in my life. When you think about Moses for a moment, if we're singing the song of Moses, I can just imagine Moses saying, this is what he did. This is what he did. He used me, a nobody, to bring the people out of captivity. 
He, this is what he did. I mean, I can, I can look at, you could just look at the apostles, John and, and uh, Peter, and, and they're going, this is what he did. If you look at Rahab, the harlot, and in Hebrews 11, it says, Rahab, who is a harlot, not former, like is a harlot because of faith. Can you imagine her just saying, this is what he did. This is what he did. I can just look at the woman at the well and saying, he pursued me when no other person pursued me. He gave me love when no other person would extend that love to me. I can imagine the woman who was caught in adultery. This is what he did. The blind man that was healed, this is what he did. The lame man that was healed, this is what he did. I mean, could it be that it's just the first million years? And I don't even know if they have years in heaven, but first million whatevers in heaven are just us singing the songs and saying, this is what he did. We're raising our glasses and saying, this is what he did. And all we're doing, I'm, I'm, you know, we're giving high fives to like Billy Graham and like, you know, where's John Piper? There he is, you know, like. You know, just, we're, we're raising our glasses. We're saying, this is what he did. We are singing the songs of Moses. We're, we're thankful for what Christ has done. And this is why we live for those days. To say, this is what he did. I mean, there's going to be, the history of the world as we know it will be wiped away. When Paul, in what Paul is describing here. If our eyes and our affections are on Christ, then our brackets don't matter as much. Like all of the stats that are being built up in the next couple of weeks will mean nothing on these days. I mean, all of the wars that have happened, all of the kings and the presidents and the prime ministers that have been in place will not even matter at this point. It will be all erased. History as we know it will be gone. Because this is a new day in which we only proclaim what Christ has done for us. And so, if we set our hearts and our affections on this day, um, I think this is what it means to pursue Christ. Our affections are only on that day when we say this is what he did. If anything, all he's done is given us reminders that this is not our home consistently. If everything is about us praising his name in glory with him forever, if that is our satisfaction, that is our joy, all he's done is consistently showed us reminders. I mean, if you look at, here, here's an example. If you look at Charlie Sheen, I mean, the guy has everything that an American man wants, right? He's a, a rock star for Mars, right? He's winning, right? <laughs> and he's got everything, and he's got Money, success, I mean, all these young, like, 80s movies that I love, like Red Dawn. He's like, Wolverine. Like, and he's got millions and millions and millions of dollars. He lives with the porn star. He lives with the bikini model. They both, you know, hook up with him. They have no brains, but that's okay. And he doesn't either. He's completely lost his mind. And what you're seeing here is this. This world is not your home. You can have everything that this world could possibly give you, and at the end, you will just lose your mind. Because you, you raise your glass to nothing. I mean, we have earthquakes and tsunamis that almost wipe out countries. It's, a, it's crazy. 
And this is, this is where we live now? This is where we live. What does it teach us? This world is not our home. If you continue to put your hope in what this world has to offer, you will just be humiliated consistently. So here's why we run for that day. I run for that day. So when I get home this afternoon and I see my son on the floor, I go and I play with him and I teach him the gospel because I look forward to that day. When I go home to my wife and I I try my best to lead her, like Christ loved the church because I live for that day. You know, when I pastor and I do my best to preach the word of God to you so that you can know Christ deeply because I preach for that day so that one day when I raise my glass, I can say, this is what he did. This is what he did in my life. And so here's the thing. Here's my desire for this church. Run hard after him. I want each of you to be able to Raise your glass and say, this is what he did for me in my life. I didn't waste it. I didn't put my time into people that wasted it. I pursued him passionately. I fought sin passionately. And I love him and I love and I want to know him more. So here's the question. When will you begin to do that? When will you begin to pursue Christ passionately? When will you become more aware of yourself? This is what Paul, he was more aware of himself than anybody. He's like, I'm not perfect. When will you become aware of yourself? Don't lie to yourself and tell yourself that you're good. You're perfect. You need, you need to know him more. When will you begin to practice what you already know? When will you be able to hold on to what you've already obtained? When are you going to start doing that? When will you st- stop living off of victories of yesterday? When will you put yourself around people that you can actually learn? When will you be teachable and begin to learn and grow? When will you stop wasting time? This is a person that Paul's painted for us that is passionately pursuing Christ. God help us. God help us, right? Let's ask him to help us this morning.